Uh, there are certain statements that when you see them, they stop you in your tracks. And this statement this morning did such for me. Uh, this pastor, Leslie Weatherhead, one time said, The opposite of joy is not sorrow, it is unbelief. Now, I have never, ever encountered a statement like that. And it is so opposite of what we expect and how we think that when I read it, I said, I've never thought about this in this way at all. But the longer I looked at it and mulled it over, the more I realized this is absolutely right. It's absolutely right. The Bible says that the source of true joy is the Lord. And our relationship with the Lord is based on faith. Unbelief blocks that relationship so that when sorrow arises, we are unable to combat it with the joy of the Lord. Many years ago, R.A. Torrey, who founded Biola University out in California, uh, concluded a church service where the layout of the sanctuary was such that people had to file past the stage. And a tall man, about 60 years of age, came by and scowling at Dr. Tory, said, I am an unbeliever. Tory said to him, you don't need to tell me. Your face shows it. He said, you have one of the most wretched faces I have ever seen. The man said nothing. But the next day, he wrote R.A. Torrey a letter. He said, I am wretched. How could I be anything but wretched? Dr. Torrey said this on that occasion, There is nothing in unbelief to meet the deepest needs of the human heart. Nothing in unbelief to transform the sorrows of life into joys. Intelligent faith in Christ fills the life with sunshine. Unbelief fills the heart with clouds and despair. There it is. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. It is unbelief. Whatever builds our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then, also builds our joy amid sorrow. Now, this morning we are coming back to our series in the Last Supper. We're coming to a message in John 16 entitled, Joy Turned Into Sorrow. And what we're going to discover in the passage we look at today is that Jesus does two things. Number one, he teaches us to expect sorrow. And then secondly, Jesus transforms sorrow into joy. I want you to take your Bibles and let's open to John 16. Let's begin with the first one by reading verses 16 down to the first part of verse 20. And notice what the Savior says as he teaches the disciples 
and he teaches us. Listen to these words starting in verse 16 of John 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, can't you just see them scratching their heads? What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. They were having a conversation with one another about this. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Bow with me just a moment in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Thank you for the privilege of building our faith in Jesus Christ. And thank you that it is absolutely without doubt true that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And so the more that we know of him, the more that we understand him, the greater are the resources that we will have as we combat the sorrows that we experience in this life. Lead us now, Lord, into all truth, that our hearts might be lifted up to the joys divine, and we might be equipped for the battle we face. For Jesus' sake, amen. As we open this section, it is very clear that it is about the disciples' emotions. If you are counting in chapter 16, you will notice the word sorrow occurs five times. Look back at verse 6 for just a moment. It occurs there twice in verse 20, in verse 21, and verse 22. But notice verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, Jesus says, sorrow has filled your hearts. Did you notice throughout this chapter that there was no attempt on the part of Jesus to shield the disciples from the coming sorrow? In fact, down in verse 20, when he says, you're going to weep and lament, those were used of Jewish grieving practices at a funeral, where they would wail and mourn and lament for many, many days. Those terms refer to a profound inner sadness. Now, look back for a moment at verse 1 and notice how Jesus opened the chapter. He said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, did you notice? Jesus' main concern was not protecting the disciples from sorrow. It was his concern to protect their faith from failing. We need to put this all together here this morning. Jesus knows that if our faith fails, then sorrow will win and we will give in to despair. But if our faith in him remains strong, then sorrow will not win because faith brings joy. And that joy in the Lord will counteract the destructive effects of sorrow 
that lead ultimately to wretchedness. By the way, can I, can I just stop here for a moment and ask you this question? Are not you grateful for passages like this that remove false views of being a Christian? Aren't you grateful for that? How easily it is for us to think that being a Christian means Jesus is now going to wrap us in bubble wrap and insulate us from all of the difficulties and sorrows of the world. How easy it is to think that way. And then some huge tragedy comes our way, and we think, well, I didn't think this was how God treated his children. Why, if this is what Jesus allows to happen to his children, I don't want any part of it. How easy it is for us to slip into that thinking. You can't believe how many times I find myself going down that road. Uh, One Bible teacher has said about this passage, there is here not even the hint that Jesus will rescue them out of their sufferings. And I love this comment that was made by Pastor Herschel Hobbs, who pastored many years ago in Oklahoma City. Listen to what he said. God does not seal his children in a plastic bag and remove them from the stern realities of life. God's laws work equally for all. The Christian lives in a physical body and is subject to germs, disease, and death like any other person. And that is exactly right. You see, being a Christian does not mean we escape the real world. What it means is being equipped to face that real world. How we need to hear that. Being a Christian does not mean we escape the real world. Rather, it means being equipped so that we can face this real world. Now, to do that, I want you to notice what Jesus tells us. Here's how he equips us. He transforms our sorrow into joy. Look at verse 20 and notice what Jesus says. Truly, truly, by the way, in the entire Bible, Jesus is the only one that uses this expression, truly, truly. What he means is, you can bank on this. You can count on this. This is absolutely undoubted. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Do you have this verse marked and highlighted in your Bible? Every Christian ought to have this verse underlined, highlighted, or marked. It is a very critical point that Jesus is making. Uh, This little phrase, turn into, means to experience a change in nature. It means entry into a new condition. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. 
He doesn't say he will spare the disciples from the sorrow about to come. What he says is he will transform their attitudes so that despite the sorrow, they will have joy. Man, is that critical. Jesus does not say he will spare them from the sorrow about to come. What he says is he will transform their attitudes so that despite the sorrow, they will have joy. If we could take time just to uh, listen to the kinds of sorrows experienced in this very room, we would be amazed. We sat with each other, we would recognize that this is true, that Jesus does not spare us from these sorrows. But we would also begin to hear from the people of God how he has transformed our attitudes in the middle of those sorrows so we have joy. Now let's follow Jesus here to see exactly how it is that he does this, all right? First of all, let's notice that he tells us we know the future plan, not just the present reality. That's the first critical thing here. How can we have joy? Well, it comes because we know the future plan, not just the present reality. Look again at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And now notice this illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Did you notice how this little phrase, starting in verse 16, uh, a little while, confused the disciples? By the way, did you, uh, did you count the many times that it occurs in verses 16 to 19? Seven times. Seven times. Uh, look back at verse uh, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer... And again a little while, and you will see me. Now, the first little while here is a reference to Jesus' death. The second little while is a reference to his resurrection and his appearances to the disciples over the 40 days of the post-resurrection period. Now, the disciples, they were not expecting this at all. As many times as Jesus told them, they were not able to see the plan. And so when Jesus died, and this was going to happen in just a few hours, they were thrown into confusion, despair, sorrow, and defeat. And if we ask the question why, well, it becomes very obvious as you look at the Gospels, they misunderstood the Old Testament and how God's plan for the Messiah would unfold. Um, Let's just look at a very familiar verse from the Old Testament for just a moment. And I think we can see why they were so confused. Would you read this very familiar prophecy from Isaiah 9-6 with me about the coming Messiah? Let's read it. For unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now what does this look like when Messiah would come? What does it look like? Well, it clearly looks like he would overtake the government. And he would rule as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and he would be the prince of peace. Do you know the next verse makes it even more emphatic? The next verse says, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end, and he shall reign on the throne of his father David, and shall establish it forever and forever. Now, if all you focus is on this, and the Messiah comes, and he doesn't do this, what is going to happen to you? You're going to be confused. See, they completely missed Isaiah 53, didn't they? That he would be bruised for our transgressions. He would be wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would be upon him, and by his stripes we would be healed. You see, because they could not see the plan accurately, joy could not transform the sorrow. But Jesus knew the plan, didn't he? He knew the plan. He knew not only how the scripture fit together, but he knew the future. And he knew after his death would come resurrection, ascension, that following ascension would come the Holy Spirit. And he knew the disciples, transformed by all of these things, would eventually turn the world upside down. And he said to them, it's very much like a woman giving birth to a baby. Jesus knew that there was going to come the sorrow of birth pains, but because he knew how the scripture fit together, and because he knew how the future would unfold, he knew that the birth pains would lead to the birth of a beautiful baby, and he knew that the disciples, in seeing that baby, would ultimately find their sorrow transformed into joy. Let me ask us this morning, how many of us find anything but delight at the sight of this precious baby? Let's all say it together. Oh. You can't get over it, can you? How delightful was it when the mother was going through labor pains? Not as much. Not as much. Now, isn't it amazing that the same baby that caused the pain is also the cause of joy? Jesus says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, 
She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You see, the mother endures the pain because she knows that the joy is coming. Now, Jesus' death caused the disciples tremendous pain. But that same death, it issued in their forgiveness. It issued in resurrection life. It issued in a future in heaven for sure. They could not see it then, but once Jesus appeared to them, they would see it very, very clearly. The very same event that caused them sorrow would be turned into their joy. And as the Holy Spirit taught them, they would see that the cross was absolutely necessary for the plan of God to bring salvation to the world. Now let's just apply this to us for a moment. We know the plan, don't we? Here's the plan laid out before us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God. This is the plan that every Bible-taught Christian knows. At the first coming, Jesus would die, rise again, and ascend to heaven. Then He would build His church through believers, and that would be a time of sorrow. Someday, unannounced, He will come at the rapture, and He will take believers home to their heavenly home. Following that will be a period of tribulation on this earth like there has never been seen before that will last seven years. Then the second coming of Christ will happen. He will establish his kingdom for a thousand years and all believers will rule and reign with him. And finally, he will defeat Satan and cast him forever into the lake of fire. He will make a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell forever with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is the plan. That is the plan. R.C. Sproul had this to say about heaven. He said, the most notable thing about heaven is what is absent as well as what is present. Have you ever thought about that? The most notable thing about heaven is what is absent as well as what is present. Listen to what is absent in heaven. Tears, sorrow, death, pain, darkness, ungodly people, sin, the sun or moon, and the curse from Adam's sin, that's all absent. Listen to what will be present in heaven. The saints, the river of the water of life, healing fruit, the Lamb of God, worship, the wedding feast of the Lamb and His bride, the unveiled face of God, and the Son of Righteousness. Now think about that with me. Everything that causes sorrow here on earth 
will be transformed and replaced by everything that causes joy in heaven. That is the plan. That's the plan. And because we know the plan, we know someday our sorrows are going to be replaced by these joys. Notice that Jesus continues. Second thing he tells us is that we now know present joy, not just future joy. Now, I could just hear an objection this morning, Pastor. This all sounds like pie in the sky by and by. Is there anything we can experience now? And I want you to notice what Jesus promised in verse 22. Look what he says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, he says, referring to the resurrection after his death, and your hearts will rejoice. And now notice this statement. No one will take your joy from you. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus moves, as it were, from pie in the sky by and by to an experience that we can have right now, and this is exactly what happened after the resurrection. Turn with me to John 20, and notice with me verses 19 and 20, and notice exactly what happened after the resurrection. It's exactly what Jesus said. I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Look at verses 19 and 20 of John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I don't like to criticize the translation that I'm reading from. The word glad. Very timid translation. You know what the Amplified New Testament says here? It says... They were filled with joy, delight, exaltation, ecstasy, and rapture. Just like most Christians at 8.30 on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you knew I've been waiting all week to say that, didn't you? They were filled with joy, delight, exaltation, ecstasy, and rapture. And do you know this never left the disciples no matter how much they suffered? Look at Acts 5 for just a moment. And notice with me verses 40 to 42. This joy never left them no matter how much they suffered. Look at it. Verse 40 of Acts 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them 
and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, this joy never left them no matter how much they suffered. They knew that Jesus was with them. They knew that they were doing his work. And they knew it was a privilege to know him and to serve him. And so what the Bible is saying to us is this joy can be with us to sustain us even in our hardest trials. Uh, Billy Graham in his crusade used to have a booklet that he would give to the prayer counselors who would train people that came forward in the crusades. Listen to what Billy Graham had to say. He said, some of the most pathetic people in the world are those who, in the midst of adversity, indulge themselves by wallowing in self-pity and bitterness, all the while taking a sort of delight in blaming God for their problems. Have you met folks like that? Have you? But then listen to what he said as he continued. Christians can face tribulation, crisis, calamity, and personal suffering with a supernatural power that is not available to the person outside of Christ. What a wonderful statement. Listen again. Christians can face tribulation, crisis, calamity, and personal suffering with a supernatural power that is not available to the person outside of Christ. What is that supernatural power? Well, it is Christ in us. It is exactly what Jesus meant when he said in verse 23 about us that this is a joy that no one will take from you. It is Christ in us, the supernatural power that comes so that we can face all crisis, all calamity, and all personal suffering with that resolution. What an amazing gift this is to us. We know present joy now, this moment, not just in the future. Notice the last one. Thirdly, third way Jesus equips us for turning sorrow into joy is we know answered prayer, not just unanswered prayer. Does this resonate with you today? One of the great causes of joy in a Christian's life that overcomes our sorrows is we know the privilege of answered prayer, not just unanswered prayer. Look at verse 23. In that day you will ask me nothing. 
Truly I, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. The key for us to understand what Jesus is saying here is that he uses two words for ask. In the first part of verse 23, when he says to the disciples, you will ask nothing of me, that is a word that means to ask a question. In the other three uses, when he says, you will ask of the Father, you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, that is a word that means to ask for something, a request. Now that completely opens up what Jesus is saying here. The disciples would no longer need to ask Jesus questions because the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. But after Jesus left, they would have a new privilege asking the Father in Jesus' name for the things they needed. That would be a brand new privilege. Notice twice Jesus says, you're going to ask in my name. Uh, one of the best explanations of what that means, I discovered from Oswald Chambers in his classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. You know what he says the phrase here, in my name, means? He says it means asking anything in my nature. In my nature. So that what Jesus means is this, when he says, ask in my name, he says, we are to ask for what Christ would want, not for our own spontaneous desires. Prayer then is not a means for us to get God to do what we want, rather it is a means by which God accomplishes what he wants through us. Chambers says this, the idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. Boy, how wonderful that is. Prayer is cooperating with God by being at one with Him in our desires. That's what the Lord is saying. Prayer is cooperating with God by being at one with Him in our desires. So read it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my nature, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my nature. Ask in my nature, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So when we are cooperating with God, being at one with Him in our desires, two amazing things happen. Two amazing things happen. Jesus says, the Father will give it to you. And He says, your joy will be full. What an amazing and wonderful thing. There was a woman many years ago who knew this kind of prayer and this kind of joy. 
Her name was Gladys Aylward. And she was a missionary to China before World War II. By the way, uh, this woman, who most of us probably don't recognize, became so well known for her efforts that books have been written about her. And there was even a movie made of her life starring the famous actress Ingrid Bergman. She wrote in her autobiography that when she was a child, she had two sorrows. Here were her two sorrows. All of her friends had beautiful golden hair, and her hair was jet black. And that bothered her. And then, all of her friends kept growing, and she stopped. You know how tall she was? Four foot ten inches. And those two sorrows as a child growing up filled her with grief and disappointment. All of my friends, they have fair hair, mine's jet black. All of my friends have kept growing. I've stopped at four foot ten inches. Then God called her to be a missionary to China. When she landed in Shanghai and stepped onto the dock and looked at the people God called her to reach, this is what she said. Every single one of them had jet black hair and every one of them stopped growing when I stopped. And as she looked over the scene, she exclaimed, Lord God, you know what you're doing. Lord God, you know what you're doing. One of her great quotes has come down to us. Listen to what the little woman with the jet black hair says, the eagle that soars in the upper air does not worry itself about how it is to cross rivers. And that's what you and I are called to. We are called with Jesus Christ to soar into the upper air of His plan, of His joy on the inside, and of His answers to prayer when we live and serve in His will, and when we soar in that air with Christ, we don't worry about all the rivers that we have to cross. What an amazing, amazing thing Christ has given. This is how Sorrow is turned into joy. Let's take a moment, shall we, and let's thank the Lord together. Just before we sing and the events of the day will take our mind away from this truth, 
as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you don't think that my sermons make a difference in my own life, I want you to know that they make a powerful difference. And this very week, I found my thoughts saying, Lord, it ought to be easier. It ought not to be this difficult. And I began to find myself whining and complaining in my heart about wanting an easier life. And then as I finished my final preparation for this message, I realized that's not what God calls us to. He does not promise He will take away our sorrows. What He says is, I will transform them into joy. And oh, how that changed my whole perspective last evening. As I finished up my final preparations, couldn't wait to get into the pulpit this morning to share with you what God has done in me. And this morning, before the Lord, we are a grieving people. We are a sorrowing people. We do have trials and difficulties and hardships. But we can handle them in a way that the world never does. We can handle them with the promises of Christ and with His personal presence, giving all that we stand in need of. And today, whatever it is you may be struggling with, whatever it is you may have found to be so difficult for you, the Spirit of God wants to apply in your life these very truths. Father, I pray today for my brothers and sisters. I ask that you would help them to see all of the riches that we have in glory in Christ Jesus. And I pray today, Lord, that the birthright in the joy of the Lord that has been granted to us may have a new and fresh understanding in our hearts today. And Lord, thank you that you have not promised it will be easy. You have not promised that you will spare us from the things that the unsaved around us deal with on a daily basis. But you have promised that in those times you will be there. You will walk with us. You will help us to see the plan. You will answer our prayers when they are in accord with your will. And you will give us the inner spiritual power that is necessary to walk in this difficult world. Thank you, Lord, for passages in the Word of God that are so realistic, and yet at the very same time, give us an amazing and wonderful hope. We love you, Lord, today. Thank you that all that is committed to us by the wonderful work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Come now and minister to our hearts. Draw our attention to you and all of your great promises. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.